Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and this week, editors John Ralston and Elizabeth Thompson talk about the 2020 presidential race here in the state to give us a breakdown of what they've observed so far. Later on, reporter Jacob Solis and intern Shannon Miller talk about the point-in-time count that happened in Las Vegas and Reno this week. The count is required by the Department of Housing and Urban Development to determine how many homeless individuals are on the street or in shelters on a single night in January every year. At the end, Michelle Rendells and I chat about the movie The Report that we both just saw. But first, let's hear a few indie stories that intern Tabitha Mueller read on the radio for our partners over at KUNR Reno Public Radio. This report was originally from Riley Snyder and Michelle Rendells. A proposed hike in Nevada's gaming taxes could bring in more than half a billion dollars in state revenue every two years. Under a ballot initiative introduced by the Clark County Teachers Union last month, the state could soon increase gaming taxes by three percentage points on all gross revenues over $250,000. And according to research conducted by the Legislative Council Bureau's Fiscal Analysis Division, that means the state could net roughly $650 million more each biennium. However, before the proposal becomes law, the teachers' union must first collect more than 24,000 signatures from voters in each of the state's four congressional districts. If they get enough signatures, it would then be added to the 2021 legislative agenda. This story originally came from Michelle Rendells. Nevada has received failing marks for its tobacco control policies in the latest report card from the American Lung Association. Nevada received Fs for having low tobacco prevention and cessation funding, relatively low taxes on the product, and restricting tobacco to people over the age of 21. That's according to the group's 18th annual report released this week. The low grades come in spite of a relatively active 2019 legislative session in which lawmakers passed a tax on vaping products that's expected to bring in more than $3 million for tobacco prevention activities. The scorecard pegs Nevada's adult tobacco use rate at 23% and its youth tobacco use rate at 21%. With the Nevada Independent, I'm Tabitha Mueller. All right, Elizabeth, big time for the Indy. We're coming up on February. We just turned three, which is, of course, bigger news than the presidential race, but we're going to talk about that anyhow. We're about to go into February. We have some big events coming up uh, in advance of the caucus. Tremendous number of visits going on here. You know, you and I have been around a long time, uh, meaning that we're old, and I don't remember any caucus here or any voting here in a presidential race that seems more up in the air than it does right now, right? Yeah, I think so. It's been interesting. So even though polling, and of course we know the polling here in Nevada is few and far between, right? And caucus polling is the hardest polling to do. Uh, I think that India is one of only two reliable polls in my estimation that have been run anytime recently. So, you know, Biden looks to have the edge, but the margin of error there is, you know, a little higher than in a normal poll. Uh, Bernie's right there with him in my mind. Warren possibly too. Uh, and Mayor Pete had a little traction and then fell off. And then Megan's story about Steyer kind of spiking a little bit because of all this money he's spending on mailers and TV. So in my mind, it's, I don't want to overstate it, but it's sort of a, maybe a four-way or a five-way thing that's going on. 
Well, we can't really predict anything, I think, not just because it's so close as you just described it, but because Iowa, which, which is on the 3rd, and then uh, New Hampshire, which comes 11 days before Nevada on the 11th, have not voted yet. And I still think what happens in Iowa and New Hampshire is going to have a great effect on what happens in Nevada. But I think that we're better positioned now to make uh, an impact than we have in a long time. People forget, and you know how I rail about the national media forgetting about uh, us, and some, some of them even talk about how they go right from North New Hampshire to South Carolina and forget about the other state. It just happened with someone uh, the other day. But finally, uh, uh, and this happens on the day that we're uh, recording this podcast, uh, a National Journal columnist made the point that, that I think I have been making for a long time about Nevada and our outsized importance uh, this year because of all the different scenarios, and you described some of them. If Biden was the front runner nationally and doing well in both of the other states and in Nevada wins Iowa and New Hampshire, he's going to have so much momentum coming here that there's going to be an all-out effort to try to stop his momentum from from whether it's Bernie or, or Elizabeth Warren or, or even Mayor Pete. Uh, if, the, if the first two states are split or they're uncertain outcomes, uh, they're very close, then Nevada is going to be seen as the tiebreaker. It's going to be very, very important for all of the candidates. I also think there's an outside chance that Bernie wins both Iowa and New Hampshire, and he has a pretty formidable following here. He almost won here the last time he ran, uh, and you remember the all-out effort to try to stop him here after New Hampshire. Hampshire and the Clinton folks coming up with all kinds of disingenuous stuff about the Nevada electorate and Harry Reid having to get the, the culinary union off the sidelines to essentially drag Hillary across the finish line. It could have been a completely different race uh, last time if, if Bernie had won here after winning in New Hampshire. So I think there's all kinds of scenarios, more so than there were even in 2008 or 2016, that could make us uh, pretty important here. But I think it's a fool's errand to try to predict it until we know what's going to happen in Iowa and New Hampshire. Yeah, I agree. I think um, Nevada matters probably more than ever and possibly in more ways than ever, depending on which way this breaks. I also want to point out something that's different about this year that happens after Nevada, which is many more states have been bumped to Super Tuesday. Um, that's not that many weeks after the Nevada caucus. So in my mind, um, the, the, the four early states are extremely important, and, the, and it's going to really matter in all those Super Tuesday states what, what happens here, what happens in South Carolina, because any voters, any caucus or primary voters at that point that are undecided, they're going to be looking at what happened in those, those four states. And I think Western voters in particular are going to be looking at Nevada. Um, so I, I think it plays that way, too. And of course, California's moved up, so that's a big deal. In fact, early voting in California is going to start have started before the Nevada caucus even occurs, but uh, and has way more delegates than the, the first four states combined, uh, I think. But of course, this is I think a lot of people forget this, and maybe even a lot of people listening don't get how this works. It's not so much about the delegates that are being uh, accumulated in the four early states. It's the perception of momentum or the perception that your candidacy is failing and, and, and you're going to run out of money and you're not going to continue. Many candidates drop out after Iowa or New Hampshire, or at least they have in the past, whether this will be a different because of all the different candidates uh, we'll, we'll see. But it's not about the uh, the accumulation of delegates and all, but how the national media covers this and how there's a perception 
which becomes a reality of momentum coming out of those first two states into Nevada and then into South Carolina, where we should say Biden, because of his strength in the African-American community, which is huge in South Carolina, has a big lead right now in South Carolina. So if Biden could run the table, the first three states, including Nevada, he'll get South Carolina and he might be almost unstoppable going in uh, to Super Tuesday. And of course, there are a lot of ifs in what I just said. Uh, but uh, I do want to say one quick thing, Elizabeth, about Mayor Pete's campaign, which he has not gotten out of double uh, single digits here, but he has a great organization here with some very smart people and dozens upon dozens of people on the ground, which he has done because he wants to take advantage if he can manage to break through into the top two or three in either or both of Iowa and New Hampshire. If he can, I don't count him out here. Yeah, I agree there. We got to remember, right, there's three and a half weeks to go uh, before the caucus here uh, in Nevada. So even though Iowa is quickly creeping up on us, uh, we're, we're, we're less than a, a week away now. Um, we still got time after that for things to play out in New Hampshire. So he, he and the other campaigns still have time to make a difference there. Uh, and then a couple more weeks almost uh, until we get to Nevada. Although I'm curious to know, Megan's written a couple great pieces on the caucus and how it's going to work. So this year, for the first year, the Democrats have early voting for the caucus. Um, so some people will be casting their caucus ballots uh, really earlier than ever and, and before actual caucus day. And as you and I know, things can happen in those last few days before people vote that, that can turn things. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up, the, the, the issue of early voting, how they've changed some of the caucus rules, uh, and the fact that I don't think that anyone, even the people who are really on the inside of this in the Democratic Party, know what the turnout here is going to be like. And I think the turnout here could be affected by what happens in Iowa and New Hampshire as well, uh, with, with the various campaigns trying to either stop momentum of, of another or increase momentum for their candidates. I get the sense that we're going to know a lot about, in, I think you can't make an, uh, uh, projections from what happens in one state and turn out to another. But if we see huge Democratic enthusiasm, which a lot of the polls are suggesting exists in Iowa and New Hampshire, I think the turnout here could be along the lines of 2008 when, you know, I made fun of Harry Reid publicly, unfortunately, for saying 100,000 people were going to turn out. And it was 114,000 uh, I, I think. And so uh, I think that's going to be a, gr a great measure of Democratic enthusiasm here, too, how many turnout. I've been tracking the voter registration. They've been doing phenomenally well in that. And they have same-day registration for the caucuses as, as well. And so uh, even though people criticize caucuses, the smart folks in the Democratic Party, the people that Reid brought in, know that this is much more important for organizing for, 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 for November than, than it is for anything else. That's right, because every just to make sure the listeners understand what you're driving at. So um, every person who was motivated enough and enthused enough and cared enough to show up at a caucus um, is a prime candidate to be a volunteer uh, in a campaign, uh, to have house parties for candidates, um, to rally people in their neighborhood. To them. So you're right, those caucus voters are useful uh, to the party uh, in more ways than one when they show up that day. So let's talk a little bit uh, uh, in the time we have remaining uh, about uh, if I if we can be shamelessly self-promotional too about uh, 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 shamelessly self-promotional about what what we're doing in February around the caucus, including uh, uh, I'll say the first thing that that I'm really uh, proud of, which is that we're sending 
uh, the great Megan Messerly, our 2020 lead reporter to both Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, forcing her to actually buy real winter clothing for the first time in her life, perhaps. <laughs> She's from California. Some people may or may not know. But I think this is going to be a great thing for her and a great thing for us to get uh, in the independent perspective from Iowa and New Hampshire before Nevada votes. Yeah, Megan's going to be out there um, visiting uh, a, a town which bears our name but is not pronounced the same way, which is kind of funny because we're Nevada. always correcting correcting people from other places about Nevada. So in Iowa, it's Nevada. She'll be talking to caucus goers out there. Uh, they've been participating in caucuses much longer than Nevada. Uh, Democrats have about how they feel about the caucus. Do they think it's time to put caucuses on a shelf and run a primary? She'll be out there uh, paying attention to what the candidates are saying in Iowa versus what they say in Nevada. This is a good opportunity too, I think, to mention to people if they want to take one last look at our presidential candidate tracker in the next couple of weeks. We've been tracking every visit by every candidate, where they've been, uh, issues they've talked about, how many times they've uh, come. If, if people who are just now getting engaged in this are looking for information uh, on the candidates, our, our candidate tracker uh, is a great place to do that. Megan keeps that updated still on a uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and then, yeah, from Iowa, she'll uh, head to uh, New Hampshire, basically just to repeat the exercise, uh, look at what the candidates are, are doing, and she'll be there uh, all the way through through voting day two. So that, that, that'll be exciting for us to have some kind of firsthand knowledge of what's going on in those two early states. I'm glad you mentioned that presidential tracker. We have that. We also have an endorsement tracker, and the endorsements are now coming in almost daily. Uh, and we assign values to those endorsements. We copied uh, the, the great 538 politics site, on, and, and although we don't do it exactly the same way they do because of because we're, we're state-based, but you get some sense of, of who's supporting uh, the candidates there, and, and, and Megan was responsible uh, for a lot of that as well. But we, we also are, are, are very uh, honored this, this cycle, Elizabeth, to have been named as the co-host of the presidential debate in Nevada on February 19th. There's going to be more information coming out uh, about, about that and ticketing and, and, and what, what, well, who the moderators are, are going to be, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. And so that information is going to be coming out probably, I, I thought it was coming out this week, it's probably going to come out next week now. Yeah. Um, but that's a big deal for us. Our little fledgling three-year-old baby is playing with the big boys, right? Yeah, absolutely. So if you've missed it, if you've been living under a rock, uh, listeners, so uh, that is the 19th of February. That's a Wednesday night. It's happening at the Paris here in Vegas from 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. Uh, it's going to be telecast and live streamed in a variety of places. Uh, we'll be sharing more and more information as uh, as we get it. And um, yes, we, we hope to have someone who we know and love on the moderating um, stage asking uh, not just Nevada specific questions, but some Nevada specific questions. I'm I'm sure to these candidates just a couple days uh, before the caucus. Um, and, and not to mention that, if you don't mind, John, I'm, I'm going to brag on you a little bit because I'm, I'm really excited about the event we're doing the night before. Um, so the Smith Center has a uh, a great venue uh, next door to the to Reynolds Hall called the Troche uh, Studio Theater. Um, you've convinced three New York Times reporters, uh, some of the best political reporters in the country, to come and join you on stage for an Indie Talks event. Uh, we'll be talking about the presidential campaign, both nationally and as it's playing out here in Nevada. Uh, settle the question once and for all about whether Nevada really matters and uh, just how much. Find out if anyone can pronounce it correctly. 
um, and many, many other great topics. So we don't have too many seats left for that. I just want to mention, if you want to be in on that event, we're almost full. Um, so you're going to want to get a hold of us real soon to, to reserve your seats for that. But that, that'll be a great night leading into that debate. That, that event, as, as with all our events, is you just click on our, our, the link for events on our website and you can find all the information you need. Jonathan Martin, Maggie Haberman, and Alex Burns, three of the best known and the best political reporters in the country, in, in my opinion. It's going to be great uh, having them here uh, just a few days before the caucus. Finally, uh, we're also doing an event up in Reno. Uh, that is going to be a lot of fun called the caucus is coming. That's the night after uh, the debate, uh, assuming that we're still alive, uh, uh, Elizabeth, uh, <laughs> after that week of activity. And it's, it's the caucus is coming, which is a play on the winter is coming. It's a game of Thrones themed event. It's our major Northern Nevada event. Uh, I, but I, I am looking forward to this more than almost anything else, even the debate that's going on that week, because I think it's just going to be a purely fun event. Uh, it, the, the production values that people are going to see at the Art Museum in Reno on, on the night uh, of the 20th, uh, when I first, I, I am not that easily impressed by this stuff. As you know, Elizabeth, I was completely blown away uh, by what they're doing, not just being a Game of Thrones fan, but the creativity and I guarantee people are going to be talking about this event for a long time uh, after it occurs. So I'm looking forward to that too. Me too. So I want to throw a couple of details on top of that just to pique curiosity for people who don't have tickets or they're kind of on the fence about it. So this is our first major fundraiser, uh, number one. Um, we're really excited about it. It's going to be held on the top floor of the museum. The view of the valley from there is unbelievable for anyone who's never been to the top floor of the Nevada Art Museum. Um, we're we're recasting the top floor. If you are a Game of Thrones fan, you're going to be stepping into Westeros almost literally. Um, there's even a surprise with the elevator, which I don't want to ruin for everybody, but um, you're going to hear about this elevator and you're going to be sorry if you didn't get to ride in the elevator. Um, the food and beverage is amazing. It's all Game of Thrones themed. Uh, every inch of space uh, is going to be um, transformed and uh, there'll be dessert as well. We're going to have some trivia. Um, there's a couple big things that are going to be happening and, and that'll be announced. And I, again, I don't want to ruin any um, surprises, but if you read the indie, listen to the indie, love the indie, um, please join us that night. It's going to be a great party and a lot of fun. I want to be clear that just because we're calling it the caucus is coming, this is not a democratic event. It's not just for the Democrats. Um, the, the theme Game of Thrones is really about the big battle. That's the election 2020, uh, looking for the battle for the White House. So uh, this this event is for people of all stripes who want to support the Indy and, and join us for a great party. So yeah, if, let me just wrap up by saying, if you're listening to this podcast, please tell all your friends to go check out uh, all the information about these events. Uh, uh, we are really, really proud of what we've accomplished in three years at the Indy, but we can't do it without support from generous donors, large and small. Uh, and you can see all those donors on our website too. We all who work for the indie believe passionately in nonprofit transparent journalism. And that's what that is uh, really all about. And let me just conclude if I can, Elizabeth, by saying the two words that I want everyone to remember, we matter. Hundreds of volunteers descended on the streets of Las Vegas and Reno this week to kick off the homeless census. 
the biennial count is required by the Department of Housing and Urban Development if cities hope to have access to certain federal money to combat homelessness. But it also comes amid an effort by the Las Vegas City Council to enforce a ban on sleeping or camping on downtown sidewalks. Our very own Shannon Miller was there for the count in Las Vegas, and she joins us now. Shannon, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jacob. All right. So first things first, how many volunteers were there? Um, So I was at the Clark County's count, and um, on the 29th, they counted the urban homeless. And I think today is when they're kind of going to the outskirts of the county in the more rural areas and up in northern Nevada and Reno, they're um, doing their count. But to answer your question, in Clark County, there are about 568 volunteers. And then up in Reno, um, I've heard reports of about 40 to 50, so a little bit smaller. Okay. And and who are these volunteers? I mean, what kind of person goes out and, and does this? So the volunteers, they did have to show up pretty early. And I uh, know that in Southern Nevada, it was tough to reach the goal, which was, I believe, about a thousand, but they got about half of that. And um, volunteers in my group, at least yesterday, there was Liz Ortenberger from Safe Nest and Catholic Charities had coordinated some volunteers. And basically all the, the groups involved in our regional continuum of care, which is our planning body when we get those um, housing and urban development funds, the continuum of care um, kind of decides what to do with it. And yeah, the so, continuum of care, those are the organizations sort of involved in addressing the issue. That's correct, yes. They're like a network of partners and um, government officials basically who are working on uh, addressing homelessness in Southern Nevada. Okay, so what kind of data are these volunteers collecting? The volunteers were collecting um, basically demographic data, age, race, basic things like that. And for youth, they were asking questions about medical, um, if they had medical conditions, such as did they have HIV AIDS? Um, Did they have problems with alcoholism or controlled substances? And whether they were fleeing domestic violence? and other barriers to accessing services. I see. And so how, how then do these volunteers define homelessness when they're going and asking people, what are they looking for? So the volunteers were instructed to look for people with maybe overworn shoes. Maybe they have a shopping cart with them with like a blanket over it, or they're carrying blankets. Some of the um, more physical trademarks of homelessness. Um, and the definition is just that they do not have a permanent shelter, um, a fixed shelter. And so those staying in emergency shelters should also be counted, included in the count of homelessness this year. Um, Those who are maybe vulnerable to homelessness living doubled up with another family would not be counted in that number of homeless because they're not technically homeless by that housing and urban development definition. Okay. So, I mean, Las Vegas is a big city. 500 people isn't that many for for an area this size. What were they, where were they looking rather? Yeah, that's a good question. So it was really interesting that apparently the continuum of care who coordinates this census, they use um, three years of data is what they told me. And that data comes from their Um, the continuum of care, outreach teams, um, law enforcement, and fire departments, basically, had they seen any homeless people in these areas, had homeless people been found here in the last three years, or I'm sorry, two years. And um, if they hadn't been found in the last two years, then this year, they kind of um, rule that area out. And so with that data, they had determined that about 94% of the city needed to be covered with these census volunteers. And there were about 150 
tracts, so different areas that each team was kind of assigned to, to go through, count how many people there were, and hopefully get as many surveys as they could. So I want to ask about the recent policy decision by the Las Vegas City Council to sort of enforce a ban on sleeping on downtown sidewalks. So that was controversial when it passed, and now it is sort of entering an enforcement phase. Um, Was there any discussion about how that ordinance is going to actually affect the existing population of homeless people in Las Vegas? It might be a little bit early to tell because the um, census data is still coming in about whether any homeless who were interviewed talked about that. I know in my group it um, it came up a little bit with a couple homeless individuals we had a ch- an opportunity to speak with. There's been a second one since I spoke with you last, Jacob. Um, one passed in January that makes it a misdemeanor to sit or lie down in areas where the city would need to come in for sidewalk cleaning. And so um, advocates were pretty upset about that one as well, just like the last one. And um, at least for the people we spoke with yesterday, they definitely said it felt like they were being homeless people were being harassed unfairly um, and almost made to involuntarily stay in these shelters in order to avoid being arrested or getting fines that they could never afford to pay. So Las Vegas isn't the only city who's tried to affect some kind of policy ban on sleeping in outdoor spaces. There was famously in a decision in Boise to do something similar, and that was actually struck down by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals here. Um, can you explain a little bit about that and how that might affect what Le- Las Vegas is trying to do? Definitely. The Boise decision was um, six homeless individuals in the city of Boise sued the city for a a very similar ordinance that basically was saying that homeless people could be jailed or arrested for sleeping outside. And the city had even, um, after a decision by that appellate court, they added a provision that the ordinance wouldn't be enforced if there were no shelter beds available. And um, the attorneys at the city of Las Vegas have kind of pointed to their ordinance saying, look, um, it's going to stand up to this Ninth Circuit decision because they do also have that provision that if there are no shelter beds available, then law enforcement will suspend enforcing arrests and ticketing. I think what's important to mention is in that Boise decision, there is language about why individuals wouldn't be able to stay at the shelters for reasons such as exceeding stay limits, where they would have no other choice but to sleep outside and could possibly get in the same situation as these defendants in in the Boise decision. And so lastly, I mean, when can we expect any kind of numbers about what the homeless population looks like coming from this? That's a great question. This year, the um, census used a mobile app that allowed data to be uploaded, um, from my understanding, almost instantly. So those numbers are not available just yet. And I, from my understanding, they are doing the ur- continuing to do the urban count today. Um, but we should be able to expect that data, I think, in the next couple weeks. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Shannon. Thanks, Jacob. Hello, Michelle. Hi, Joey. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. You and I have both watched a movie recently. Not together, separately, but uh, you watched the report and so did I. I did. Did you like the report? I liked it a lot better than I thought I was going to like it. I also really liked the report. I think it's John's favorite movie of the year. He, I, I think he said to me privately, and if, if I'm wrong, John can roast me on Twitter for this, but uh, he said 1917 and the report were like his top two movies of the year, I believe. Wow. Um, I, 
I thought it was really good. Yeah. Where do you, where do you, where do you want to start with it? <laughs> it is not up for any Oscar nominations, which I think is surprising. Yeah, that was a little bit surprising since I kind of think it's like Adam Driver's, you know, moment right now. And, the, and he the did man, well last year with the... He's been in every movie this yeah. year, I swear. <laughs> he's like the hardest working man in Hollywood. Yeah. Well, going into it, I was a little afraid it was going to be kind of, I don't know, maybe preachy or... But but I found that it was, you know, it was really focused on is the technique that is being used to interrogate people at Guantanamo Bay based in any sort of science and mm-hmm. evidence and just the struggles that this one guy who is a, a staffer for a senator. Yeah, Daniel Jones. Daniel Jones was his name. Okay. Yeah. So he's a staffer for Diane Feinstein, who's chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Played by Annette Bennings, who did an amazing job, I thought. As Di- I mean, I was not going going in hearing that Annette Bennings was playing Diane Feinstein. I was like, I don't know how she's going to pull it off, but I thought she did a very good job. Yeah. So her staffer is Adam Driver, and mm-hmm. and he's charged with putting together a report about whether so-called enhanced interrogation techniques used by the CIA at Guantanamo Bay were justified. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think it explored a lot of. Right after 9-11, there was just a lot of emotion and a lot of things were approved that, you know, have come under scrutiny over the years. Uh, And one of those was the CIA's decision to do waterboarding and and play loud, heavy metal music in the same rooms as these prisoners. I mean, in the movie, they just showed them like literally just beating people and having them chained to walls and stuff. I mean, mean, this is what you would think of as classic torture. And I think those scenes are really powerful. I mean, they were hard to watch, but you know, obviously it's it's a dramatized version of, you know, real life events, but and and, and you can't say that this is all 100% accurate because obviously I think the CIA is probably going to refute a lot of the way that this movie portrayed them. But regardless of that fact, I think the report itself stands on its own and then how they show the CIA's treatment of the prisoners in Guantanamo Bay the way that the report portrayed it and the report is public. So, Yeah. And I think um, one of the interesting things that, that is that currently one of the individuals that's the star of the show, his name is um, Mitchell is his last name. Uh, there's currently a trial going on in Guantanamo Bay. They're, they're trying some people that were from uh, – that are accused of war crimes relating to September 11th. Mm-hmm. And they brought in the guy who created these enhanced interrogation techniques and he's there – defending them right now in real life. So it's, it's really interesting that this report is playing out kind of almost in real time. Yeah. Um, and it's under scrutiny. And, and you know, so part of this is the government paid $81 million to these contractors who kind of made this fancy PowerPoint and said, we have a new way to to deal with the, the increasingly difficult uh, challenge of terrorism. And it's these really pretty brutal techniques but they were not backed up by evidence. And in fact, decades earlier, it had been basically a consensus that it doesn't, what works, doesn't work. Yeah. What works is building a rapport with the prisoner and kind of discovering what motivates them in a positive way as opposed to trying to beat out information. I also thought one of the other interesting elements of the movie was watching this legislative process. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so this is, you know, Democrats are in control. And so it's Democrat. Diane Feinstein, that's the head of this committee that has to deal with this report. But basically, the report throughout is kind of called into question because of 
her partisan leanings. And so even if this guy is trying to do what's right and and not really, um, you know, not aligning with one party or the other, it automatically becomes a partisan thing. And people have the power to suppress uh, this report because it's part of a political process. And we're seeing that even now today, the partisanship. Yes. And it reminded me kind of of impeachment proceedings that in this highly polarized environment that we're in, it's so hard to separate even, you know, a well-intentioned proceeding, you know, from politics, from the taint that it's maybe just being done by political motivations. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a question that's being uh, dealt with in real time right now in the Senate with the the presidential impeachment trial um, and questions of whether that is is a partisan motivation or, or kind of a pure motivation. Yeah. It's interesting to see the motivations of agencies and people yeah. trying to be self, self-preservation, self really. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a universal theme that you see in, in politics and beyond, people just trying to you know justify previous decisions that they've made. Um, my one criticism of the movie was the name. The I report. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it says enough about what it is and isn't really selling the movie. It is a, it is a very plain name for a very not plain movie. But um, I am I am I am surprised to see that it, I guess I'm not. There were a lot of really good movies this year, so to see it not nominated for any Oscars is not. Uh, I don't think it was snubbed um, because I think that there were just so many actually like fantastic movies. I mean, I'm glad that Adam Driver was is up, is up for Best Actor for Marriage Story, not for this movie. But I think he showed his acting chops in this movie just as much as he showed it in Marriage Story or. or you know, any other movies that he's been this year, all, you know, 500 of them. <laughs> yeah, and I just saw Marriage Story and, wow, that fight scene was oh, yeah. incredible. Yes, so. I mean, he he is probably one of the most talented actors acting right now. So, but yeah, well, as uh, as we lead up to the, the uh, Oscars, we will probably be chatting about some more movies. And even though this one's not nominated, we felt like it still deserved a discussion, especially as... Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader, John Ralston's one of his favorite movies of the year. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me, Michelle. Thanks so much, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'd like to thank John, Elizabeth, Jacob, Shannon, Tabitha, and Michelle for joining me today. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you can do so by searching for Indie Matters on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you have comments, criticism, praise, or want to tell us what you thought of the movie we talked about this week, you can do so by emailing me at joey at thenvindy.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, email editors at thenvindy.com. People with Bodies does our theme music, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Indie Matters. I'm Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week.